Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Suba Agarwal is a bi-coastal writer and stand-up comedian who grew up outside of Chicago, where she first started hitting open mics while still in high school. Suba has written for Comedy Knockout on True TV, The Jim Jeffries Show on Comedy Central, and Arsenio Hall's live 2022 talk show for Netflix. She made her late-night TV debut telling jokes on NBC's A Little Late with Lily Singh, and she's acted in shows such as Westworld and General Hospital. She released her first comedy album, Dog Show, via Blonde Medicine, and sat with me to talk about explaining her comedy career to her immigrant parents, breaking out of the open mic scene, writing for other comedians, and finding her own voice. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! So, Suba, uh, last things first, congrats. I don't know which thing to congratulate you on first, your comedy album, Dog Show, or your upcoming nuptials. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, the wedding is definitely more stressful, so I'll take. <laughs> is it? Because I know, you know, the album came out a week ago as we're speaking right now. And I know for some comedians, releasing an album, even even in 2022, is super stressful because there's this this push that you've got to market it, that you've got to like hit a certain number on the Apple charts so you can take yeah. a screenshot and all that stuff. Did you yeah. stress out like that or no? Uh, I mean, I think I've just been doing it long enough and experienced so much failure that <laughs> I don't know. I don't care. I actually do have a screen. That reminds me, I need to post that screenshot. The label was nice enough to take that for me. And I'm, <laughs> I just, I've been so distracted. I totally fucking spaced, but no, I should. Yeah. I mean, I guess there is that pressure because you want it to do well, but like I said, I'm just so used to things not going well that I was like, okay, <laughs> well, I hope so, but wow. You know? So between the comedy album and the upcoming wedding, which, which of those events are your parents more proud of? Oh, for sure. The wedding, not even a question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know there's, there's a running joke both on the album and within your comedy itself that you're still trying to sort of explain to your mom <laughs> what it is you do for a living. Yeah. I mean, she still doesn't fully know. I mean, I don't even think I know <laughs> half of the time. So it's just like, what are you working on? And I'm like, I don't know, probably a lot of nothing. Uh, but yeah, cause she, she doesn't follow comedy. So, and like, it's hard for her to see it as a career just because it is so unstable. And it really isn't um, It isn't the way most careers work, where it's like, oh, you get X number of credits or you put in this number of years and then you're pretty much guaranteed to work like this. Whereas with this career, you could like have the most credits you've ever had and be doing the best you've ever done. And all of a sudden, no one's returning your emails for no reason. And you're just sitting here like, what? Like, it's just... Yeah, so I, I completely understand where she's coming from. Where and then uh, I'll get excited about like, oh, I get I got to shoot this indie film, and then she's like, oh, that's great. And then like a month later, I'm not working on it, and she's like, what are you doing now? And I'm like, 
I, nothing. Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's just there's. You're there's, like, I've got a spot at the Glendale room. Doesn't that right. count? <laughs> exactly. There's just so much like starts and stops. And I'm like, I don't even really know what I'm doing half of the year. So <laughs> I get it. Well, and and to think you, you talk about how the measuring sticks for a comedian are different. I feel as mm-hmm. though even though you've been doing this for more than a decade, those measuring sticks have all completely changed even just since you started. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty insane. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I probably would have loved it for a different reason, but it is definitely not <laughs> what I signed up for. When you, you know said, what I mean? When you did sign up for it, you were still in high school, right? When you first yeah. started going up with mics. Mm-hmm. What was the landscape like then, you know, suburban Chicago mm-hmm. in the early, late aughts, early tens, I guess? Yeah, I think I started 2007, I believe. So, okay. yeah, that was a really hot time in Chicago for stand up. Yeah, I mean, I was so young, though. I didn't get to do anything cool. You know what I mean? Because I could like barely get into any of the bars and stuff. And like I was still living with my parents and like going to high school. So it was like and it was terrible. I was a terrible comedian. Of course, I was 17. I didn't have shit to say. So it was. Uh, I was very bad. Um, so I didn't get to do a lot of like cool Chicago stuff. I just did like, you know, like I banged around open mics for a little bit before I went to college. Um, okay. So there wasn't any, even any sort of overlap where you could say, go to the Lincoln Lodge and see Kumail Nanjiani or Hannibal Buress or Kyle Kinane or Kumail. Um, I feel like, I mean, I think Kyle Kinane was already gone and then Kumail and Hannibal were the kind of there ish where it's like they would kind of be in and out of a scene if that makes sense like every now and then i'd see hannibal on like maybe dropping at a bar show or something but they were pretty much out of there when i right when i was starting so who was there that you could kind of look to as like your own sort of measuring stick of like oh they're doing something that i want to be doing in a couple years how do i get to that in a couple of years i don't know i didn't i (laughs) i think like my goals were more long term if that makes sense so i was just looking at like what i came up watching was like comedy central premium blend that throwback um like those types of specials so to me in my head uh that was the measuring stick of success is like get a special in comedy central okay um yeah, and then you tour, and I didn't really have a plan beyond that, you know? Whereas, like, now everything is so much more social media focused, which is uh, weird, but it is what it is. But when I first met you, I don't remember the first time I met you, but I remember becoming aware of you. Uh, I would have seen you at the Creek in the Cave yeah. and at the first iteration of The Stand. And I remember somebody mm-hmm. describing you to me as, like, the hardest working open micer in the city. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like such a backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is. Well, I guess it is, isn't it? Yeah. Cause people, even when I stopped doing open mics would be like, Oh, look, it's the queen of the open mics. And I was like, don't ever say that. <laughs> don't ever say that. <laughs> I guess people, people probably said the same thing about Mike Lawrence a few years yeah. before you. And then he, turned it into like winning roast battles and mm-hmm. a lucrative writing career so it's not like it's not that backhanded of a compliment yeah it's just uh it's just funny because like open mics are like it's what you should do when you first start 1000 percent. it's like how you 
um, cut your teeth and get really good, but nobody wants to stay an open micer. So then like when you keep getting called that, you're like, no, <laughs> I made it out. <laughs> you know? Right. You're saying this to someone at the stand, which is an actual yeah. club with actual shows and actual money. Exactly. You're paying me to do this. Did you feel, well, how much of that was just having a solid work ethic about comedy versus how much of it is, dare I say, pushing up against the difficulties of not being a white man in comedy? Um, I think, well, when I was younger... I was very naive and I kind of thought everything was a meritocracy, especially like a lot of kids of immigrants. Like you're raised to think that if you put your head down and you work hard, uh, you'll get success. You will be rewarded. You just have to work hard. You just have to be talented enough, which isn't how entertainment works. (laughs) So I and I knew I had a long way to go. Like I especially like and I was harder on myself than I actually um you know, I was more talented than I gave myself credit for, but I still knew I, especially being like 17, 19 years old, like I had work to do. Um, and I just wanted to be great. Like I remember watching like Maria Bamford and like Bill Burr and like, especially Bill Burr, cause his specials were like dropping, um, every couple years. And like, every time it came out, it was just so fucking solid. And um, Wanda Sykes and like their stand up and just being blown away by what they created. And I'm like, if I want to get to the place where I'm creating what they're creating, I have to work really fucking hard because I never thought I was that good. I'm like, I'm just going to have to work extra hard. And so I thought, you know, just get good enough, just get talented enough. It's that same immigrant mentality. And then like the success will come to you, which is like, nope. Uh, But (laughs) uh, so I think that's a lot of what drove my work ethic it was like it was like self-hatred uh aspiring to be great and then also just um yeah it was mostly those two actually is it is it then too on the nose that one of your first big breaks was a show called comedy knockout where you're in essence fighting for your spot on the show i know (laughs) that was so funny i was not ready to be on tv then i was like because i um for a long time, some, some people have both, but for a long time, I was a stronger writer than I was performer. And then I later caught up those chops. But like being hyper competitive and not okay with failure, like putting me in that situation on screen, I was taking everything way too seriously and way too personal, which is like not what the audience wants to see. You know what I mean? Like, okay. they don't want to. Not for that show. It's goofy and it genuinely doesn't matter. That show didn't like winning that show didn't fucking matter. The audience didn't care. They just wanted to have fun, which is like, it's like getting really upset that you didn't win, um, Wipeout or like whatever the fuck. You know what I mean? Like, so whatever goofy ass game, like it, the stakes could not have been lower. There was no prize money. There was nothing attached to it. I felt so like was- at, at midnight was slightly lower. Yeah. <laughs> But it's a similar thing. So, like, when you're not having fun, the audience is like, oh, this is uncomfortable. And I was, like, definitely taking it too seriously. But I um, I had written so many jokes and I had submitted so many jokes to be on the show that they hired me as a writer. Because they were like, oh, <laughs> like, you can write a joke. I mean, you don't need to be on screen again. But, like, you know how to write a joke. So, um, Wait, so I got- you were on screen first before you got the writing job? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, I thought it was the other way around. Mm-mm. I I auditioned for it, did the, and I, I mean, I wasn't awful, but I just wasn't, um, 
I wasn't doing what would have made it what they wanted, if that makes sense. Um, So, uh, yeah, and then I got hired as a writer and I wrote there for a couple of (laughs) years. Was that when you were able to quit your day jobs or were you still working? So what was the day job? What was the last day job you had? Uh, I worked at the Apple store selling stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Was was that... um... Was that better or worse than working at a call center or working as a clown on a party boat? <laughs> well, the call center actually was in the Apple store. So oh, okay. I did. I definitely better than working as a clown on a boat, though, uh, <laughs> because, yeah, I had benefits. So that was nice. <laughs> and as an actuary, you could, like, game it all out as to what, what career is better for you, right? <laughs> exactly. I was like, mm, we need health insurance. <laughs> So, wait, so, but if you study, like, actuary stuff, actuary tables, then you already know the calculus going in of, like, what your life looks like as a comedy writer slash performer, and you still choose it anyway. I mean, I think you're giving me way too much credit. Uh, (laughs) I knew how to make a mathematical model, but no, I did not have a lot of common sense. I, (laughs) and, like, the thing is, like, I didn't. I I didn't know any of the other like parts that come with being a comedian where it's like, oh, if you do stand up comedy, you're also going to be writing for TV shows. You're going to mm-hmm. be asked to act in TV shows. So I hadn't like prepared because like when I first started, all I wanted to do was stand up comedy. And then I didn't understand that you needed the other bits to like actually have a career and make money and be successful. And it's like exceptionally rare to just do stand up. Um, and that like, 15 years later, I might actually want to do the other stuff, you know? Um, So, yeah, I I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing. Was there a time, though, where you thought you might be able to have a career just working clubs on the road? Like the classic Uh, stand-up career? Yeah, when I first started, that's what I was aiming for. I was just trying to get as good as possible so I could get a special and then tour. So that was, like, my only goal. And just play the improvs twice a year and play the funny bones and exactly <laughs> and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you know anybody who's able to do it that old fashioned way now? I mean, I'm sure there are always road dogs. Um, they're just not doing well, <laughs> you know, because that's not a lot of money. That's why I ask, because I don't know how many people are still doing it. People still way. do it, but it's a fucking rough life because, like, all that travel is really hard on your body. And then it's not like you're traveling in a private jet. You're traveling in a used Toyota Corolla. And for dinner, you had squeeze cheese. So, like, <laughs> it's not glamorous. It's really fucking rough um, if you're, like, an old school uh, road dog. And then there are... um And then there, of course, there is the new type of touring now, which is people with giant social media followings where if they have like a hit podcast or like um, just went super viral on TikTok or whatever, and then they're touring, but it's still a little bit different because then they can also like mix in theaters or get better deals. Um, Right. Those people are generally doing more one-nighters than full six-show weekends, I think. Some some are, yeah. Depends, but yeah. Yeah. When you were sticking to the clubs, did you have... Any headliners who, like, became your mentors or took you out on the road with them? Unfortunately not, which was kind of a huge bummer. Um, And I did think that happens for a mix of reasons. I know a lot of dudes don't want to take, not a lot, but, like, there are dudes who don't want to take female comedians with them because they don't want it to look bad or they have, like, a jealous wife or girlfriend. So, like, 
And then sometimes there are dudes who do want to take you on the road with them because they are creeps. Um, so that like, and that's not all of them, but that already knocks off two get categories of male headliners. Um, and then I did have that eventually with uh, Marina Franklin, who is uh, a really incredible headlining comic based out of New York. So she would take me with her sometimes, but she also at that time was like mostly working the cellar. She wasn't on the road that much. Um, so, yeah, I think Marina's been the only one <laughs> who's done that. Mm-hmm. We've just been like, OK, well, what are you going to do? Well, that's when you end up getting more TV jobs, right? I mean, you've got to you've got to find that 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 income somewhere. Yeah. When did you decide to make the move to LA? I know you kind of go back and forth, but when, when was that first decision? To um, move to LA? Oh, it's cause uh, the Jim Jeffries show was based out of here and they hired me to be a writer. So I came over for that. Um, maybe like 2017, 26, somewhere around there. Um, okay. And then, and then I, after the show ended, I was developing something uh, that didn't go. And then the pandemic hit. And then I've been like bouncing around, not knowing what the fuck I'm doing <laughs> since then. So, yeah. What did you learn from that first TV job from being on set? I, I got to interview Jim while the show was in production. So I know oh, yeah? the lot you were on, it was kind of the same lot as At Midnight was in some other shows. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from just having a, a regular TV job? Um, I mean... I I would say probably having to pitch your own jokes was the steepest learning curve for me uh, because at Comedy Knockout, I didn't have to do that. You just wrote them and then the uh, head writer picked. Um, So from this, like being in the room during punch up, having to pitch and fight for your own ideas, like especially somebody who had such like cripplingly low self-esteem, it was brutal like nobody likes performing for other stand-up comedians and that's essentially what you're doing at that job it's like a bunch of comedy writers and you have to sit there and actually deliver your joke the way you want it to be read for these people and it's just like oh god it was so fucking embarrassing but it's the only way to get your ideas on the show so i had to like get over myself and be like if you want (laughs) if you want this job and if you want to get more jokes in the script you better speak up and fight for it because otherwise that shouldn't go happen how did your sensibilities line up with Jim's? Um, I mean, it's not because like my job as a comedy writer is to write for his voice. And right. um, Jim has a very distinct voice. So that wasn't like a hard switch. I think it's harder when you're writing for a public figure that doesn't necessarily have a defined comedy vo- voice. Like when you're doing late night and variety and the person hosting is um like an actor or whatever, and they don't have a comedic voice for you to write to, then I feel like it's a lot of trial and error before you kind of get a feel for what they like. Okay. But Jim, it was just like pretty, pretty easy to tell. (laughs) You know what I mean? Although probably not as easy as Arsenio. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man, that was great. Uh, Arsenio was wonderful. Cause like, you're always scared when you meet like a legend that they're going to suck. And uh, he was the nicest human being I've ever met. I was like blown away. I was like, man, this is the coolest person. (laughs) Well, that's also such a, that was such a unique gig, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're talking about like a late night icon Mm -hmm. who's coming back, but not for a full series, just for a limited run. That's part of a giant comedy festival. That's mm-hmm. also sort of trying to be live, but not really live. So there's yeah. all these different things going on. Yeah. Which probably makes it like fun, but also high pressure. Um, 
I mean, it is, but it isn't because it's not like, oh, they're not going to bring me back. It's like, to what? Uh, but <laughs> yeah, it's just a week. <laughs> But it was fun. I think it was just fun for me because, like, I know the head writer, Sarah Schaefer, really well. Uh, we've worked together on a, uh, a good amount of things. So I knew her. Um, and then Joel, I hadn't uh, met yet. And then Brody was in there pitching jokes and stuff. So, like, it was a small crew. And, like, I really liked everybody's vibe. So it mm-hmm. wasn't... Um... And then Arsenio was so nice and so open. Because, like... I don't know. I've become a little bitter <laughs> over the years where it's like, especially being in some of these like high stress environments where they like expect you to do extra work that you're not fucking paid for. And then they don't reward you for doing the extra work anyway. So you're like, what the fuck is the point? Um, so I never tried to go super above and beyond. You know what I mean? Like, I'm never going to be, <laughs> I'm never going to. Is this yeah. is this that quiet quitting that I've heard the kids talking about? <laughs> no, I just meant like there were people who would be like, oh, and I wrote this extra thing just in case. Or they showed up mm-hmm. to set an hour early and like those motherfuckers got fired. So I'm like, why are you doing all that? Like they don't appreciate you. Like do your job, do your job well. And then also have a fucking personal life. Jesus Christ. Um, so I've like, I, I don't tend to um, like if somebody asks me to write 14 jokes, I'll write 14 jokes. I'll probably write 20 and then whittle it down to, or like 28 or whatever, whittle it down to 14 and then send the 14 jokes. I'm not Mm going to go and do more than what I'm asked to do because like they don't need it. I'm not rewarded for it. But like genuinely, I liked Arsenio so much. I wrote more, which is like that. I never do that. (laughs) I never do that. I was just so blown away. And I loved everyone in the vibe so much that I naturally went above and beyond, which I like. (laughs) made a personal rule for myself not to do and i was like that's crazy <laughs> that's how much i loved him though uh and working in that room it was really fun now i know you know the opportunities in late night seem to be shrinking mm-hmm. a little bit and then you hear these murmurs i mean we're in the fall of 2022 but you hear murmurs that there might be a writer strike in 2023 mm-hmm. based on all of these changing mechanisms especially with how streaming residuals pay out for writers has that changed what you tend to be shooting for as a comedian, whether it's writing versus performing? Um, I mean, that was already shifting for me anyway, because I never wanted to just be, um, I mean, it's a very privileged sentence. It's really fucking hard and it's a really cool job uh, to have the privilege to uh, be staffed on a late night show. So I'm not trying to belittle that, but that was never my end goal. Um I always wanted to sell my own show and be an actor and uh, a touring stand-up comedian and write on just different shows that I thought were cool over the years. So um, I was kind of already, because the thing is when you make money one way, like people tend to pigeonhole you. So I had to fight hard to be like, no, I actually, I don't want to be staffed on something that's not going to like be what would look like a big step forward or that isn't scripted. Um, I want to focus more on building out other things. So I was kind of organically already shifting more towards acting and stuff anyway. And you've gotten some, some, some nice stuff. I mean, you're on an episode <laughs> of Westworld. You've got this, this movie coming out plan B. Mm-hmm. Um, how is, how is, how has that changed your mindset? Like just like, deciding one to take acting classes and then two going out for these these roles that aren't necessarily stand-up roles they're like showing a completely different side of you from the 16 year old who was trying to impress her (laughs) classmates i know um well i um 
with with acting, I I because I was as a comedian, they naturally put you in auditions, right? And then I was getting sent out for these comedic Indian women parts. They were like popping up for the first time. And then it would be me and the same like 10 girls I would see in the waiting room. And I was like, damn, there's like 10 of us and I've never gotten a call back. I must be like, seriously, like I must suck. <laughs> like, like for me to be eating a dick this hard every fucking time and there's 10 of us, mm-hmm. um, I'm not doing something right. So I kind of wanted to go at it from the ground up. So I went and took like a full Meisner theater program actually while I was writing for the Jim Jeffrey show. But, um, and learning it that way, as opposed to, I feel like when you're actors, I mean, when you're comedians, they'll give you like quick fixes or like quick coaching. But I'm like, I want to learn how to do this, like, and have a technique and be, uh, properly trained. Cause I think I needed all the fucking help I could get. And, um, when I started doing that, I genuinely fell in love with it. By the end of it, I was like, Oh, this is so goddamn cool. And I used to see acting as like, um, a means to build my name so I could tour more as a stand-up comedian. But like after going through that and like working in it, I'm like, Oh, I love this. And I want to do this forever. Um, so yeah, no, I, I absolutely fell in love with it. And, um, it's it's interesting, though, because it can be frustrating because acting is so whether or not you're right for a very specific part, not necessarily talent level, at least when I'm writing, I can change my voice to write for other people. But like with acting, I can't change my face. So it's well, they have hair and makeup for that. <laughs> still, <laughs> um, it's it's interesting. It's almost harder because it's less of a meritocracy, if that makes not like. Because you do have to be talented to get that role, but it just feels not more random, if that makes sense. Like more out of your control, whether or not you book, as opposed to writing. I feel it's still really difficult, but it's a little easier. Right, because with the writing, you could you could uh, have situations where they're they're asking for blind submissions, so they don't see who's writing it. Yeah, they don't see who's writing it. Like the fact that I'm like a small Indian woman doesn't mean I can't write in Jim's voice. Right. Whereas like I can't play a Jim type character on a sitcom. So I think that's for me, that's where the difference comes in. <laughs> they're like, we need a, a drunk Australian man. I'm like, actually, <laughs> I've been working. They're like, no, please maybe, leave. <laughs> maybe it would have gotten another season on Comedy Central if they had done that. <laughs> does, so, does that give you any more... The acting, does that give you any more empathy to, to, especially when you're living and working in L.A., when you see actors show up at the comedy clubs? Because mm. I, um, I know a lot of stand-ups have a bias against that because they're like, oh, you're just you're just using our stage <laughs> as, a, as an audition. Right. I mean, I'm not. I just think this industry is so fucked, so do whatever. And... <laughs> I'm not mad at them because it's not, they're not making, in like a lot, it should be the booker who's creating the type of environment they want to create. So I'm not mad at somebody trying to further their career Mm. or do what they think they need to do to improve their career. Like the only person I would potentially be annoyed with is the person who's like, oh, I'm curating a good comedy lineup. And then, but also it's a business. And at the end of the day, it's I'm my jokes are a way for them to sell liquor. So do they actually give a fuck? So I think everyone's just trying to live. So I'm not mad. I mean, it does get if it if it's like heavily leaning that way on the lineup or it's like extremely egregious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I could be frustrated, but I guess it just doesn't annoy me because I already think everything is so fucked. So I'm like, yeah, 
You know what I mean? <laughs> you don't look and go, if you're a real housewife, you should be a housewife and not. A <laughs> I mean, sure. I might think it's stupid, but I'm like, this industry is stupid. <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't hurt me anymore. Cause I'm like, I think maybe like seven, maybe even 10 years ago, I would have been like, this is an outrage, mm. but I, I don't, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> did you adopt this kind of healthy cynicism before the pandemic or did the pandemic really kind of shift I, things for you? I think, I mean, I've always kind of had that a little bit in me and then it's weird. And then this is like so much a social media thing where like people see your successes, but they don't see what you failed at. So I would say the past three to five years, I've never gotten closer to uh, life-changing things and failed so much. And then people would be like, oh, but it's like incredible that you got that far, that you were like top five or top two for this role or that like, um, yeah. So, or I was like a hair away from selling this TV show, like all of these things that like I kept getting so close to and then just not being able to move it across the finish line. And of course I did get like incredible things that I'm super uh, grateful for, but it fucking breaks a person. Cause no matter how cynical you are, there's still a piece of you that hopes for it or you wouldn't keep doing this. And so when someone's like, oh um, yeah, no, this TV show with these major fucking celebrities attached to your script that has a production company and everything. And it's all good to go. Like, and then like you have these meetings with these big people and it looks like it's going to go. And then it doesn't like, you can't help but picture your life. And like, it can't help but be a little bit real to you. Mm. Like what it would feel to have your dream come true. And then when it doesn't, it feels like you're grieving that dream, even though it never existed in the first place. And so it's really fucking painful. And it's been like a brutal <laughs> <laughs> three you, to five years, you know? Do you at least get paid for those? Um, when is for those the painful Sometimes. When the rugs gets pulled out from under you? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, okay. yeah. Because that's that's kind of always been the understanding I've had about Hollywood is that even if you don't get your show made or you, you get your script ordered, but it doesn't get to pilot, that all of those things somehow in Hollywood still feel like successes that can end up moving you up the ladder even if none of them actually go yeah i guess that's kind of what i was hearing and then i was like maybe but then after like three years of sitting on the same rung you're like what the fuck uh but also it's like it is that way with like writing and like pitching shows and stuff but with acting no there's like no reward so it's like um like I was in top consideration for the lead role in that Mindy Kaling, uh, Secret Sex mm. Lives of College Girls, and like a part. I don't know if I'm not supposed to mention it, but who gives a shit? But like also that um, brown detective in the uh, Confess Fletch movie, oh. and like both of the actors that got the part were fucking amazing. I'm not mm. mad at it or bitter at all. It just, um, it just fucking hurts, <laughs> you know? Like, cause like, oh man, like how fucking cool would that have been to have been able to do that? Um, and how life changing would it have been? But, uh, I'm not mad that anyone, I'm not like, oh, I deserve that part, blah, blah, blah. Cause like, again, the actors they cast were fucking incredible. Both projects came out amazing. Like, I'm not, uh, upset. I'm just like sad. And then once those like things keep piling up, 
even like it and it's like i don't know i think i need to work on being more grateful too because like i did also get to be have a really cool part in an indie film so like why am i letting the negative outweigh the positive you know but right it's just hard you, you, have, your plan, <laughs> you have your plan b <laughs> and and you have a comedy album out Dog yeah it can't yeah take away from you yeah, that's true. That's it's true. Out. It is out. <laughs> and how many people can say that? So, yeah. so those Very other true. actresses can suck it. No, <laughs> they're great. I love them. They're great. <laughs> but I mean, well, so what keeps you going then? Is it is it remembering to have gratitude? Uh, I mean, honestly, I did want to quit, but like, I couldn't think of anything else to do other than like maybe going back to school to be a veterinarian. But I'm like, mm-hmm. if I love animals, do I really want to look at their guts all day? That seems weird. Uh, but so I, I, that's literally the plan I had. I was like, I don't know what else I would do. And I, I do love what I'm doing. And I, I, there's always that fear in the back of my head that I'm giving up too early. If that makes sense, where I'm like, oh, okay, no, totally ma- sense, yeah. maybe some of what I really am shooting for here could happen. And maybe it won't be so hard because I feel like everything I've gotten, I've had to like claw and fight for tooth and nail. And I think more than anything, what I want is for it to just get a little easier because I'm exhausted. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, maybe it will in the future. So I think I just have to be like calm and keep pushing for a little bit and then also just being like grateful for everything that I am being given because it is a lot and it would be like really shitty of me to get things that other people want and me not appreciate them so I'm trying to work on that (laughs) that sounds like great advice yeah (laughs) well Suba congratulations on on everything again ah thank you and I look forward to the next time we talk when we can talk about all the great things that have come true for you ah thank you (laughs) This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.